I always have viewed my career like a stock. And either I can do things to increase the value of it, or I can do things to decrease the value of it. But regardless, I have control over this. everybody. This is Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to be speaking with Ryan Vespi, the CEO of CompuVision, one of Canada's leading IT managed service providers. Ryan started on the front lines as employee number three at the ripe old age of 21. He volunteered for every assignment he could and was ultimately tapped by the owner to serve as CompuVision's CEO. Under Ryan's direction, the company has tripled in size and now employs 150 hardworking, innovative team members. Ryan also takes time to pursue other passions. He sits on the Alberta Innovates Leadership Council, is an active member of the Young Presidents Organization, or YPO, and he's happily married to his wife, Sarah, and the proud father of three boys. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for us today. Peyton, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, you bet. So here's where I'd like to start. Tell us a little bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. Walk us through all of the moves uh, you made and and where you've landed. Sure. I feel like it was a little bit by accident. You know, to be honest with you, when I started with CompuVision when I was 21 years old, I also had a side business, which was a hard rock band. I played guitar <laughs> in a hard rock band that, we, you know, we toured the country and recorded two or three CDs. So if you would have asked me back then, where's my life going to take me? I would have probably told you I was going to be a rock star. And so what's interesting, you talk about entrepreneurship. I learned so many lessons being a leader in a band. We had to print t-shirts. We had to create our own store. And back then I remember we would print t-shirts and you'd, you'd try to figure out what the margin would be like. And there was always one challenge on how we sell more shirts. And we ended up selling more shirts than any other band that we ever toured with. And a couple of reasons why, you gotta remember this is back in the early 90s, like 97, was um, you know everything was cash. And so most people that get, went to a bar or went to a show, they wanted their money for beer. They didn't want to buy a shirt, even though they loved the band. And so we, we figured out early on, said, well, we gotta figure out how do we get more dollars from these folks. And we were one of the first bands ever to have mobile interact machines. Now you see them all the time, like the square and the tap. Mm -hmm. But back then they were really, really rare. And so we were a band that had a mobile interact machine and we literally tripled our sales just by having this. Because you can imagine you got a few beers in you and somebody goes, well, what do you got there? You got shirts and a CD and some stickers. I'll take one of all. And we take their visa and tap it. They would remember in the morning they got all this stuff. (laughs) Um, but it was amazing to see that. And we would tour with signed acts from LA and the way they come up into Canada. And we would be just independent band that we would just crush them in regards to sales for our merchandise. That's a great lesson. What was the name of the band? It was called Broken Nose, believe it or not. I love it. And when you say uh, hard rock band, what class of hard rock? Hair band, metal? Yeah, it would be probably like hard rock metal. It'd be like bands like Pantera, a little bit harder than Metallica. Got it. You know, but it was funny. We, you know, if I could tell you one more story, I realized just very quickly we need to get some sponsorship and we needed to get, you know, people 
backing us. And we were a party, kind of a whiskey fueled party band. You know, you it would be like if you're going to a family reunion once a year, you know, and you're seeing that other side of the family that, you know, <laughs> where, where this is going to take us on a journey. That's that's literally what our band was. And back then, I actually don't think you can do this now, but we used to throw out pill bottle shots of Jack Daniels. And so we found that if people in the crowd had one or two Jack Daniels shots in them, that like they enjoyed the show way much more. <laughs> they bought more merchandise and they actually bought more liquor because they're, they're almost primed. It's like mm-hmm. a primer and an engine and here we go. But the challenge was it was costing us a lot of money. We would we'd literally take a, you know, a 60 ounce or of Jack Daniels every show and get, I don't know, a hundred plus pill bottle, these little pill bottle shots and we throw them out to the crowd. And, and so people would catch them. And then later on, as we got more notoriety, people would come to the shows, Peyton, with, with ball gloves. And they would come to the shows to catch these whiskey shots. Yeah, there you go. And that, that was the thing. And so I realized, I'm like, we, we got to get somebody to sponsor this. Like, I mean, we're promoting Jack Daniels. We've got to see how we can get them on side. And so, you know, I went and negotiated with the local rep and I said, hey, man, we're pushing Jack Daniels. We love your product. We share it with everybody. Uh, you know, can we get some kind of sponsorship deal? And he says, yeah, no, hundred percent. We'll, we'll give you a whole bunch of swag to throw out and give to your fans, but we'll also give you for every show, a 60 ounce of Jack Daniels and we'll cover the spread. And so we would do a tour and we'd have like 20 dates and we'd have 20, 60 ounces of Jack Daniels. And that's kind of what we were known for. And so we would have these record ring outs with these bars and it just helped us negotiate our contracts up front because they were like, you guys sell three times more booze than everyone else when you come to town. And, I, and, and really the case was you give people something free, they'll end up buying. They, and they end up buying a little more. Nice. That's an old school marketing promotion. You probably cannot uh, market CompuVision using the same technique, I'm guessing. No. No, you can't. Uh, you can't. But I think you can still take the same creativity. Yeah. To be honest yeah. with you. And I don't think sometimes you maybe learn in business school is just there's other ways to be creative on how you can really differentiate yourself. And I that that's one of the things I think we pride on it ourselves on is just that we can really, you know, look at our business through a different lens. And and I relate back to those band days and what we learn from there and apply it to our business even today. Yeah, you you know, the, what I hear is you you understood your audience, you came up with a promotional idea that would appeal to your audience and serve the organization's purpose. And it turned out to be a win, 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 because my guess is Jack Daniels did pretty good in the bargain as well. So tell me a little bit about your early days at CompuVision and how you applied what you were learning from your rock band days as you became a leader in that organization. I think it was instilled early days from my mom and dad that, you know, once you take on something, you know, you see it through and you do your best and you kind of make it happen. But really, I was kind of against against the gun right from the beginning. I, I don't come from a technology background. I took multimedia and graphic design in school way mm-hmm. back when was that when that was when computers were starting to be cool. And I just kind of landed on this job. And I, I remember I remember the owner of our business coming to me and he says, Hey, I, you know, I heard your, your mom actually, believe it or not, told me that you took computers. And I always tell people this, like, God bless her, but she's like, she didn't know anything about 
multimedia graphic design. She just knew I did it on a computer. And so she just generalized that I'm in IT support and all this stuff. And and the, the analogy I always give Peyton is, is like, just because you own an oven doesn't mean you're a chef. And, and that's the exact same scenario of, of where it was. So I remember when our, our founder, a guy named Bernie Bourgeois, came to me, he's like, hey, your mom said you're in computers. I'd love to hire you. We need a guy. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I, like, sh- she's got it wrong. Like, I took Photoshop and, you know, yeah, Macromedia. Right. And, and he's like, I get it. And, and he said something to me that really stuck with me, you know, even to this day. He just said, I get it. You might not have all the technical skills. I was on a plant site, believe it or not, like a 1200 person kind of chemical plant. And he said, I've seen you interact with all these people and you have this amazing attitude and and you've built these relationships instantly with all these people. He says, we can teach you the technical skills, but we can't teach you attitude. Hmm. And you've got that and we'll figure out the rest. And so we both took a leap of faith and, you know, here we are 24 years later, you know, I'm a majority shareholder, CEO. And sometimes I drive home thinking, how the heck did you get here? I took on everything that I possibly could. I knew I had to learn. I had to be willing to work harder than some of the other people in our organization at that time that things came naturally to them to troubleshoot and resolve technology. But I use this analogy and I tell all of our staff this, especially people we hire new, we kind of do an onboarding meeting and I meet with them. And I said, I always have viewed my career like a stock and either i can do things to increase the value of it or i can do things to decrease the value of it but regardless i have control over this and so i said yes to everything they needed somebody to train to become certified in printer support well no one wants to do that (laughs) i'm like i'm in i'll do it we needed somebody to go to the middle of nowhere in you know, rural Canada for six weeks because we lost a guy there and he moved on and we, they needed to go tomorrow. I'm like, I'll go. And so I just knew, regardless if I liked it or not, my value of my career stock is going to rise if I put my hand up. And you didn't have a plan. You just were opportunistic and took advantage of the opportunities that, that presented themselves to you. Yeah, and 100% correct. Like, this was not a long-term strategy where, like, yeah. if I could put this together. But back in the day, we'd have these annual reviews, and it was always seemed to tie to comp and where you want to go. And, you know, that age-old question, where do you see yourself in five years? And I'd say but probably by year three, and our company was small, like, at that point, maybe six people. Like, And I remember you know, I'm sitting with the owner, and he's like, well, where do you see yourself? And I said, well, I see myself in your chair. Like, That's I awesome. want to take your That's role. Awesome. That's my goal. And, and at first, you can imagine you have a, what was it, a 23, 24-year-old kid saying, uh, you know, I want to become a CEO of this business. It was almost a joke at the beginning. Good for you. Way to have aspirations. You know, he'd write <laughs> it down, I think. But every year it came up. And what was interesting is every year it got a little bit less funny. And a little bit more serious. That's great. And then 2009, that's kind of, I was 33 at that time. And I think at that point, I'd raised the value of my stock. And, you know, we have this saying, reputation is built on results. You know, you drive the results and you just, you can't hold back a reputation. Yeah. And that was it. And it it was a natural thing. And I wasn't surprised. And I don't think he was as well. It was like, it was more like, it's time. It's just time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I want to talk a little bit more about the company as it sits today, 150 people, you know, what, 
types of things are you doing in IT managed services in your unique interpretation of that phrase? I've found that's a broad range of things. So help the listener understand exactly how CompuVision serves its clients. Yeah, the easy way I can describe it is, is we, by risk, we inherit risk, you know? And so we outsource an IT department for typically small to mid-market businesses. We would outsource the entire ecosystem of IT or just ingredients of the recipe to be able to manage and mitigate that. My definition of managed services is somebody is inheriting the risk for a flat monthly fee and it's unlimited. You just you just go. And so our business has been around doing that for, for quite a long time. And, and our industry has changed over time of, do you charge per asset, per user? What does that look like? And primarily it's per user. But the interesting aspect of it is, so we'd manage the ecosystem of hardware, software, and the end user experience. But what's really changing, which I'm excited about, and where I think we're different than a lot of MSPs is, you know, people will take it to the next level and build out strategy and, you know, their budgeting and try to get their life cycles of their equipment. But, you know, I've taken this interest probably in the last five or six years around digitization. And, you know, I I got a chance to go to Singularity University through YPO about four years ago. And that was just, it was just a eye-opening, life-changing experience. And I remember, I remember coming back and talking to my integrator, which is a guy named Dave. He's a great integrator because he's really good at managing my expectations and, and protecting me from the business, I'll say. And uh, I came back and you can imagine when you spend 11 days basically in the future, like you're seeing everything that is like in the early, early stages that are gonna disrupt our society as we know it. And I came back and I said, Dave, man, we are so far behind. We gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta double down now. And his demeanor is just always just like super chill. He's like, okay, well, are you sure? Cause I, I feel like you're living in this world, but everyone I talk to is not talking how you're talking. And what was interesting is when we unpacked that, it wasn't that we were so far behind in our thinking we were actually coming up behind everybody in a race and almost lapping them in our thinking. Mm. And so we weren't last, we were kind of first in our thinking in our industry. And so we started really unpacking that with our customers saying, what are the things around business process that we could start digitizing? We've gotten very good at, I'll call it simplifying it and being able to verbalize this to customers that get what we're trying to solve. So that's the thing that excites me the most of where our business is today. And I would say it separates us from our customers is we're looking at how do we remove friction from our customer's business process. And And, that becomes exciting. Well, and ironically, Ryan, my co-author, Lisa Gonzalez, and I are working on the process component book to add to the traction library as we speak. And I think the root cause is less about an aversion to technology or an unfamiliarity with technology. It's an aversion to process in the first place. And so in order to identify what might be digitizable in your business, you really need to understand all of the processes that are being followed today and where are the opportunities for simplification and ease and elimination of redundant steps and you know automating something that might take three people a week to do that's done by a machine in a day you know that is that is exciting work and i think the speed of that kind of innovation is accelerating at a rate we can't even understand because the technology is just improving itself. And so you're right, all of us are going to be behind 
very quickly if we can't buy into that idea. Couldn't agree more. Well, yeah, and I agree. And I, I always just use the term friction because people yeah. understand friction. And I'm like, well, if you haven't mapped your process yet, how the heck are you going to know where That's the right. friction is for your customer? You have no idea. Yeah. You know, you might get some data points and somebody explain it. The interesting part is when I talk to business leaders, they all think they had time. We give office tours here. We've kind of set up our office as almost like this living, breathing ecosystem of the future. And so if you were a prospect in our business, we would never just send you a quote or a proposal. You have to come for a tour. And if you're not willing to invest time to come for a tour, you're not a fit for our business. Mm. And so it sets a parameter or a gate that it's like, you have to be serious enough to invest the time to come and see us, or we're just not a right fit and that's okay. But what I, what I found is, you know, as I tour people through our organization and, and the things we've digitized and I show them some cool aspects of like, you know, digital dashboards and those type of things, everyone's excited. I've never met anyone that says, oh, that, you know, this doesn't do it for me. But what's interesting is the majority of the people, they all said, this is great. And then we do want to get there at some point, but no, not right now. They've created this mindset that they've had time to fix it. And all of a sudden, you throw a world pandemic in the mix, and that clock ran to zero very, very yes, quick. And you could see the problem now where organizations, I, I call them the analog gap. There were so many analog gaps that people didn't realize that, gosh, I can't sell my product. We don't have a good website, or I don't know how to distribute the product without our, you know, this manual interaction of human beings. And that just kind of pressured everybody to think, okay, the clock's run out. We've got to take take technology serious around how do we change our business and what does that look like? I have a, a client that might fit your user profile, your um, target market, that the CEO, probably first quarter of the COVID outbreak really going haywire, I did a check-in, sort of a wellness check call with him. And I said, how are things going? He goes, actually pretty good. He goes, you know, what's ironic is that for four or five years, we've been talking about creating a remote work environment and requiring people to come to the office less and equipping everybody with technology that would allow them to be productive at home. And if I could get somebody to agree that was an idea worth talking about and they would agree to answer the question, how long do you think it would take? The average answer I got was two years. He said, we did it in two weeks. There you go. And so... I do think people tend to gravitate towards the reality they're experiencing today. There's an inertia for status, you know, staying still that yes. that you either are going to decide to overcome yourself or a crisis is going to force you to overcome. And right. in this case, all of us had to overcome that crisis. Yeah, it was a major inflection point that no one could avoid. Yeah, that no one could avoid. And we all had to make a decision. I will say though, we were early adopters of the global talent market or, or the gig economy. And so just think about it, if I go back to the digitization example, it's like th some of these these work sites like Topol and Upwork and all this, they digitized how we access talent. That's all it is, supply demand, same way as how Uber has digitized access to a ride. Right. And Peter Diamandis is one of these guys, uh, he's a co-founder of Singularity. He talks about the kind of 60s of disruption. And and man, I took to that so hard. Like it's the gospel for me yeah. in our world. We, we have the 60s in our boardroom as big as we can on a wall, now, just as a conversation piece. And I'll just say like the global talent market, pre-pandemic, 
it was kind of in this deceptive stage. It, it, it worked and you would have to sift through people to find the right talent you want. But fast forward 15 months later, world pandemic, literally everyone in some capacity was in a gig economy, even if they worked That's right. for a business like CompuVision. And so it excites me because we have probably out of those 150, I'll call it CompuVision badge employees, we probably have another 60 people we use in the gig economy on a daily basis yeah. all over the world. And they're they're the best in class. Yeah, my stepson is in Zimbabwe teaching young entrepreneurs in the making how to code because that is a, a skill that can be done well from anywhere and is going anywhere. to be in constant demand. I believe technology is a great leveler of geographic differences, right? That if you can totally. have access to the internet, which is still a struggle in a lot of areas, and you're gonna work hard and you have some skill, you are going to be a very marketable asset around the globe very quickly, so. Totally, so, so the way I look at this, this is a massive redistribution of economic opportunity. It's over 3 billion people don't have access to the internet, <laughs> which is gonna be solved. Like I think about, yeah. I, I have a Starlink on my acreage. And so when Starlink came out, we were in the beta testing in rural Canada. And so I'm like, I signed up for it, I got it. And what blew my mind, cause I'm in the customer service business as well. This box showed up Peyton, and I don't know if you've seen a Starlink no. or seen it up front, but it, it shows up in this big box. And, and talk about frictionless install and everything. I opened the box up. The only instructions is like three pictures. No, no words, no nothing. Like it's universal. Like That means so, even I could figure it out. Even you, even you. And so literally three steps, I put this dish on the on the stand and it, the app tells you and it's like, boom. And then the, all of a sudden this dish is finding the satellite, you know, Crazy. in space and boom, I've got 150 megs per second download. And I said to myself, as I did this, that was the most seamless yeah. install yeah. understanding I've ever, I've ever experienced, to be honest with you. And I, I said to myself, I'm like, this guy deserves to be as rich as he is. But my point with this is that 3.8 billion people are going to get internet here within the next two to five years. They're going to have more drive than the Western world because we've had great lives and we, we've kind of doing it. And they're going to have economic opportunity unlike anything we've seen. Yep. And so this should be a wake up call to the Western world. Yeah. Interesting stuff. All right, let's, let's turn the tables a little bit and talk about leadership in general. I want sure. you to go back to the first moment in your life, maybe as a very young boy, when you saw somebody lead and took note, either because they were so good at it or they were lousy at it. Who was it? What was the situation? And what do you remember thinking? I've worked from an early age. Like I think I started cleaning like our junior high school when I was in elementary. And I've kind of always had a job, you know, I'd say probably from 12 12 years old and up. And I, I delivered papers even earlier than that. Yeah. I remember like Mr. Pollard was the guy that he would want the paper at 6.30. Well, and I delivered everything else at 7.30 and he was willing to pay an, a premium, but he sucked at AR. Like he just wouldn't pay his bill. <laughs> and so just imagine this, like, so accounts receivable, I got to go and collect for Mr. Pollard, but he always wanted the paper because he went to work earlier than everybody else on my route. And so I'd appease him to the point that I had to just say like, man, like if you don't pay your bills, like you're getting your paper at seven, like I, help me here, help me help you. 
And so anyways, I digress. But the, the one moment I think that kind of steps out is I used to work at a gas station. And I remember my leader and my boss was a guy named Miguel Chenier working with him. And I probably worked with him for five years. And I probably started when I was early, like 17. He always treated me with respect, but he, he, he held me accountable for things. I'll just tell you this this one story. And I remember we uh, playing in a band. We lived in the same house and we're all probably 18, 19, mm-hmm. but we all worked, Peyton, at the same Petro-Canada gas station. And so we all had different shifts. Like one guy would be the seven to three, the other guy would be 10 to six. And then one guy would wear the graveyard shift like from 11 to seven, all at the same house. So it's literally we're passing each other in the night. But I remember this one and you want to talk about leadership and how to control... I'll say emotions is we had a party one night, Friday night, big party. Everyone's there. We're having a great time. One of the guys was supposed to work the shift, the 7 a.m. shift at Petro Canada. And he didn't show up and everyone's passed out. Everyone's like, they're done for the night. It's the morning. And Miguel came to her house and walked in. My doors, you know, not locked. He comes in, there's people on the couches and he comes upstairs and he said, Hey boys, boys, um, you know, we got a shift that somebody needs to fill. Somebody here was supposed to be doing it. Who's the guy? You guys, you guys owe me that. You know, which which one are you going to cover this? And and I just remember how how gracious he was. He didn't get angry at us. He didn't fire. And he didn't have to do any of that. And I remember I was probably the most you know cohesive to say, okay, I'll do it. I got you. I got your back. And I went and did it. And I took the shift. He didn't fire anybody. You know, and then he reset the expectation. You know, a couple of days later, said, hey guys, like like cool. You're going to party. You're going to do what you need to do, but you got to figure out who's going to cover this spread or, or this is not going to work. And I just remember that story. Cause it's like, think about how that is today. Would people give, you know, their employees those chances, even though they're human beings and yeah. he's probably yeah. been there in that scenario. And, and so, so I remember that it was like yesterday. So how has his leadership style influenced your development as a leader? What are you, what are you trying to repeat or, or replicate for yourself that, that helps you be effective? We do a lot of personality typing here at our company. And I think it's, it's more of just really understanding data points. I love knowing personality. I like, there's one called the Enneagram and we use it in YP all the time. And so I'm a type eight, which is a challenger which, you know, low functioning eights have a problem with their temper and they're just, they can come across arrogant. They can just, they can really, really suck the energy out of a room very quickly. And so I've learned that to be quite self-aware of that. And I think about like, Miguel was not an eight. He was not an eight. He never used anger or intimidation and those type of things. And so I just think as I've grown as a leader, it's been really important on on how I can motivate people to do the right thing and have yeah. these good conversations. I will say I'm I'm a horrible manager, Peyton. Like I'm not I'm not great because I'm not a details guy in the obviously in the EOS world I'd be a visionary, but I don't want to do one on ones. I don't want to get into the detail. I I want to have great conversations with the people. So yeah. nobody reports to me in our business other than my EA just because I you know I, yeah. I probably should have somebody and. I actually feel bad for her because I, I feel like I'm like a, a single parent manager. Like, here's some money. Uh, good luck. Go, go get some food. And My guess is your EA is smart enough to know that you report to her and manages the relationship that way. And uh, that solves everything. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. So she just, she just had her four-year anniversary. It's hilarious mm. you say that. And I always joke, I'm like, hey, I'm just really happy you came into our world. She's like, no, you know, I let you hire me four years ago. 
you're right. You control this, right? Good. But yeah. but I, I will say I learn what I'm really good at and what I'm not good at. And I'm a great color commentator. I'm good at getting excitement, getting people rallied around these things, but I'm not a good manager. And I'm not good at kind of drawing the boxes around of growth and those trajectories. So I also realized like it's a unique journey. I went from being an employee to an employer mm-hmm. and that's rare because I, I literally spent the majority of my career being an employee with no ownership, no nothing. And so one of the things I remember the day when I got a, a piece of equity in the business, I just said, I remember what it's like to be an employee and I know what I liked and didn't like about being it. I don't want to forget those moments so that people have that same feeling. And, and it's funny, I'll tie it back to when I played in the band, we tour with these bands that were huge, that were bigger than us, and, and they were our stars in our eyes. And I remember there would be certain aspects, I'd go up to them, hey man, I love, I love your stuff, I'd give you an autograph or get something. And, and there would be two types of musicians. The ones that would give you the time of day and like really appreciated you for being there and saying that, and then the other ones that wouldn't give you the time of day. And I remember saying that to myself going, if we ever get there, I I will, I will leave when everyone else leaves. If somebody wants an autograph, wants this, wants to know about a story, I'm going to give them my time because they're the reason why we're even on this stage. And so I think those are the things that we kind of learned along the way. Um, And I love it, to be honest with you. I don't take a lot of the airtime in our, our, our quarterly updates and our manager meetings or our weekly jams. I really don't. And it's our integrator that does a lot of it. And then just also our managers. I want them to develop those skills and, and really own this thing like they would themselves, right? Yeah, it's good stuff. Is it, Have you ever watched somebody lead that was doing it poorly and said to yourself, I need to quit doing that or I got to get better at that? I learned this thing a while back around intent and and it actually came from YPO. And if you think about conflict, we talk about conflict a lot in YPO forums and stuff. And and a lot of times misinterpreted conflict because I didn't look through a lens of intent. Mm. And Mm. and I just assumed it's, it's how it was landing for me. So that's how I respond to it. And I didn't stop and think about, intent. And so I've seen this in our business and I try to course correct it and have these conversations. I'll give you a real life example. We had one of our our technicians, he was short paid on some overtime, you know, and he was low functioning at the time, you know, I'm sure he would, he would say the same thing, stormed into our CFO's office and said, Hey, you short paid me and you're ripping me off and you didn't pay me for what I did. You know, and our, our CFO is quite gracious. He's a calm demeanor guy. So he's not an, he's not an eight. Uh, and he just said, well, I'll look into this. I don't know. And, and you know, and then the employee just kind of stormed off. And I, I heard this just from the hallway. And so I went after him, you know, in a, a non-confrontational way. And I just said, hey, like, man, I want you to think about something for a second. I, I want you to think about intent. Like, do you think the CFO's intent was just, hey, you know what? We're going to short pay this guy this week. We're just not going to pay him for his overtime. Like, do you really believe that that was his intent? And of course, it, it, our egos just kind of cloud everything. So it's like, yeah, he screwed me over. And I'm like, like just, just breathe for a second. Do, we really, do you really think he consciously did that? And he's like, well, no. If that wasn't his intent, then should that be the response on how it landed for you? So I saw those things, but I would have been that guy at 20, <laughs> 23 years old where I would have stormed in and said, how dare you? And, and so I just think the self-awareness thing and – Ego is a big 
ego is a big problem in our societies. And I think it, it's the construct of structure has made us elevate these egos because we can't be real or vulnerable or open because gosh, that's looked as a weakness and it's wrong. There's a couple of things there. So first of all, I love you talking about intent. And I've found that that teaching a team how to assume positive intent when they're IDSing issues gets them to the solve a lot faster because the emotions associated with the assumption of negative intent go away and then you can really focus on the issue at hand. And the issue is emotion and sometimes it's driven by ego and sometimes it's driven by something else. And oftentimes it's stuff happening outside the business. Whatever it is, we tend to bring that stuff to work. And then when we hear people at odds with us, we assume there's an intent to create problems in our lives that, that exacerbate those things. I think what's ironic for me, Ryan, is that egos also serve a super valuable purpose. Our, your career is owing to your desire to be really good at any job you've ever been given the opportunity to do. And that's an ego-driven mindset. It's this I desire agree. to be effective and ex exceptional is really a powerful tool. And so learning to moderate the throttle on that thing and recognize when your ego is bumping into the ego of somebody else, that is what makes for, for great teamwork and great leadership, for sure. Yeah, you make a great point. Ego definitely has its purpose. I'll tell you a funny story though. Like my wife always says to me, nothing's ever enough. It's never enough for you. Like you're yeah. always want more. And, I, and I'm sure people can resonate with this. I'll call it type A personality types are always striving for more. And you know, she uses this term all the time. It's like, you're enough, you're enough. Yeah. And, and I take that, I try to take that and go, I agree, I'm enough and be able to try to enjoy this, still want that drive, but not to dismiss where I'm at today. Yeah. Uh, and that's a hard thing to do, an easy thing to say, but you know, everyone talks about enjoying the journey. It's not about the destination. And finding that balance, I think, is just so important to be able to not only enjoy your life, but enjoy what you're doing, right? Yeah. So, it's great stuff. Tell me what the future holds for the organization. What, what are you hoping for over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about where our space is going. There's some external drivers, external forces that could be viewed as negatives. Um, one, one is cybercrime. Cybercrime is exploding right across the globe. Uh, I just re recently did a presentation for the Business Council of Alberta, and some of the stats are just so staggering. Like right now, it's costing nations about a trillion dollars per year Jesus. for cybercrime. And that, that's, I think it's 700 billion more than natural disasters. Hmm. And so like this isn't going away, it's exponential growth. Everyone you know would, would have some type of story about a cybercrime, but that's just created crazy opportunity for our industry. We're needed more than ever. And so I see a huge growth in the cybersecurity side of things. Once you've built the trust with the relationships and those type of things, they're, they're, they're naturally customers are turning to the people that have helped them along the way to kind of be able to manage that. So I, I see some exciting opportunities for growth. I do believe the historical consolidation of our industry over the last 10 years. And what's happening is a lot of private equity and a lot of money has just really paid attention and go, gosh, recurring revenue. We like this. It's predictable. And so there's this almost feeding frenzy that's happening in regards to placing capital in our industry. But I do believe for our industry to survive and do well, 
I don't believe smaller MSPs are going to be able to survive and implement what they need to do to protect their customers from cyber crime. And they just won't have the capital to do it. I think we need to be 50 to $100 million to be able to be relatively safe to be able to manage it. So for me, it's like chair one is irrelevant to me. Like, where can I do my best work? What, what can we do? Like, I'm, I'd be happy to sit at a table with other smart people all rowing in the right direction to make that happen. So I, I think we'll see some of those. Those dialogues and conversations are always happening and, and just to be interesting to see how this all gets unpacked. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That is the great difficulty we're facing right now. I think that the number of the frequency of problems being created in all of our lives because of cyber activity is just crazy. All right. One last question. Go back to your 21-year-old self taking a job for the first time. You now see the future and you're a leader in the future. What would you tell yourself is the one most important lesson to keep top of mind as you're developing as a young leader? We have a core value here and it's be curious. And it's probably one of the most important core values we have. It's just curiosity and really, really trying to just dig into learning about everything everywhere. And there's this difference between fixed and growth mindsets, which we all you read about and learn about. I would tell my 21 year old self to just never take anything for face value that that is what it is. Is there a better, different way? Can we think of things differently and be willing to adapt to change, adapt to whatever environment you're getting and just be curious and learn as much as you can because that is going to serve you well and no one can take that away from you. You may not like that your cheese has moved, but it's going to move. Get ready yes. for it and and deal with it, right? Totally. Yeah, that's and, great and I, stuff. I, I, I'll tell you one last thing and then I know we got to run, but... My wife always tells me this, and every every time I, I think I'm assuming some leaders have these these imposter syndrome and they have these moments. I, I know I do, and, and I remember just you know telling her every once in a while, "What if this all? What if we blow this whole thing up? What if it just all goes to you know hell in a handbasket?" She's like, "Well, so what?" She's yeah. like, "She's like, no one can ever take your brain, and so you're good. You're good. You'll you'll adapt, and you go, and you know sometimes just that." That moment of clarity is like what I need. And I, I think people need to tell themselves. I, yeah. I need to tell myself that. It's like, it's, it's okay. Like, yeah. it's all okay. Your, wife, so. your wife's a very smart woman. And it sounds like, just like me, Ryan, you may have outkicked your coverage here. <laughs> More than you know. Yes, excellent. Uh, thanks excellent. For that. My pleasure. So if a listener wants to learn more about you or your company, where's the easiest place for them to go find more information? Compuvision.biz, B-I-Z, is our website. My Twitter handle, which I spend more time listening than talking, which seems to probably be a smart thing, is at Ryan Vestby. So you can find me there. And awesome. uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk to anybody. I love meaningful conversations. And I find some of the best, the best conversations of the nuggets are in the most unlikely sources. Yeah. That's the best part about life, right? You never know where they're going to come from. Well, you're going to get a lot of people asking if you'll start each of those meaningful conversations with a pill bottle full of Jack Daniels. So <laughs> that's your fault, not mine, just so we're totally. clear. Okay. Yeah, I, I got to renegotiate my contract. I, I think I think you do. I think a re-sponsorship, I think a re-sponsorship <laughs> is 
you got to figure out how to digitize that distribution model, though. Correct. Correct. Uh, all right. This has been Mike Payton at the EOS Leader Podcast. Ryan, thanks so much for being generous with your time and your storytelling. You're a compelling guy, and, and I learned a lot today. Hope you all feel the same way. This podcast is about helping each of us be better as a leader every day, and you've contributed greatly to my journey. Uh, and I hope you contribute to the journeys of a lot of other listeners. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me. If you're running your business on EOS, you know we value open and honest feedback. So please open up your podcasting app and leave us a review. Let us know if there's anything we can do to make the podcast better or help you along on your own entrepreneurial leadership journey.